Can we just say thank you to Brian and just let him know how much we love him? That was a moment I was just more excited about than anything. I, you just need to know. I mean, it, what you see up here with Brian is is who Brian really is, and I, I just love that man to pieces. So what a cool opportunity, I think, that we have as a church to really step in uh, and walk with him through a really difficult season that's coming up. But um, uh, for those of you that are here and join in, maybe even for the first time, welcome. Uh, we don't normally have this up on stage, but today, as you've probably gathered, uh, we are celebrating this thing called baptism. And baptism is really significant, especially today, especially in our world today, uh, because baptism requires a choice, and it's a choice to follow Jesus. And you, and you might say, well, that choice is always there, that choice is always available, that choice is probably always important, but, but here's another layer of importance for that decision, and especially why baptism is important, is because our culture and our environment is not going to naturally push us towards the person of Jesus. That to follow Jesus is actually to turn counterculture and it's actually to make decisions and move in the direction against the grain and against the current for what Jesus is calling us to step into. And some of you, I believe this, Brian believes this, we've prayed for this. Some of you, the decision to get baptized today is your decision to make. And if you didn't plan on it, that's okay. If, you're, if you feel like right now, man, I, I'm not ready, but that might be, I mean, maybe something's stirring in me, maybe this is the next step that I needed. Man, I've thought about this, I've struggled with this, I've gone back and forth about this for a long time, maybe even like me for years. Maybe today's your day. I just want to preface that for you so that you can begin a, a dialogue and a conversation with the Holy Spirit over the next couple minutes to ask him the question, is this my next step with you today? And I hope it is for, for many of you, I, I really do. I want to ask one question right at the top, and this is what the, the, the text that we're going to study is going to jump into. The question goes like this, how do you remain true to something when your environment moves in the opposite direction? As we talk about Jesus, as we talk about our culture, we're going to talk about our country, we're going to talk about our world, we're going to talk about sin. When everything is moving against the person of Jesus and is actually serving as an inhibitor for us as we move towards Jesus, when everything moves against us, how do we remain true to somebody like Jesus? Let me phrase it just a little bit differently or a little bit more contextual for the church. How do we as the church remain true to Jesus when the environment in which we live moves in the opposite direction? To discover the answer and the meaning to that, we're going to jump right in. Revelation chapter 2, Jesus is writing a series of different letters to different churches through the apostle John. John was exiled, and so Jesus reveals himself to John, and he says, I want you to write this letter to this specific church, and what you're going to find out is unbelievable about this specific church. Here's what he says. To the angel of the church in Pergamum, write... These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. He's talking about the word of God here. The word of God is actually the Bible. It's talked about a couple different places throughout scripture as a two-edged sword. It's sharp. When you touch it, when you understand it, when you hear it, it actually changes something. It's alive and it's active. And so he's saying, hey, these are my words. Jesus is saying to the church, these are my words. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. 
Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. He repeats this line over and over and over. In Satan's city, where Satan has dominion, where Satan, his throne resides. And then this person named Antipas. Antipas was a faithful follower of Jesus whose name literally means against everyone against everyone. Jesus is talking to the church. He's commending this man who lives in a sinful, broken city because he is against the city, against the brokenness, against the sin because of his allegiance to Jesus. So important for us to catch. And Jesus says, you did not renounce your faith in me. You actually remain true to my name. Pergamum, if you have to understand Pergamum, uh, let me articulate a couple things that, that maybe will add a different layer of context. We're going to have some pictures for you. Pergamum was actually a really in, important and significant political capital. It was called in the province of Asia the less. So for 300 years, this was a prominent political battleground for the region, for the region of Rome for the empire of Rome. So it was significant politically speaking, but it was also significant as far as shaping the culture goes. A couple of things, you're seeing temples behind me. Uh, there were temples all over because this city was known as being extremely, extremely religious. Extremely religious. Temples to Trajan, which was the first one, Serapis, which was the second one. Uh, there were Roman gods and Roman emperors that temples were all through. I mean, it's funny. If you look at pictures, it's temple upon temple upon temple upon temple upon temple. But one of them, there was one god, one Greek god that Pergamum was known for worshiping the most. Of all the area, of all the province, all, all over the world, people would flock to Pergamum because of the worship of one God, and his name was Asclepius. You know what's so crazy about Asclepius? Is Asclepius was a serpent. He was a Greek God that had the form of a serpent. And so as Jesus is writing to Pergamum, and he's saying, this is Satan's throne. This is Satan's city. What other story in scripture involves a serpent? You remember Genesis chapter 3? Adam and Eve were created. They're placed in the garden. God gives them an instruction and it says a serpent was there and the serpent tempted them. And he said, did God really say he's trying to withhold from you? He's trying to keep knowledge from you. He's trying to keep understanding from you. Do you know what Asclepius was known for? This is what people all over the world would come to Pergamum for. Asclepius was known because he provided healing and knowledge. Doesn't that just give you goosebumps when you think about that? Jesus is speaking to the church that resides in one of the enemy's strongholds. And he's saying, you've remained true to me. Even Antipas, who they killed, Satan's throne, Satan's environment, Satan's world, Satan has a grip on this world. And Jesus says, I'm proud of you for staying true to me and for staying true to my Name. Do you know what Satan's kingdom looks like? Do you know what Satan's kingdom looks like? Think about today's world. Satan's kingdom looks like chaos, deception, fear, idolatry, perversion, immorality, and wickedness. Does any of that sound familiar? Isn't it funny? It's almost the language of the day. Not just in our culture, not just in our country, 
not in just our political world. It's all over the world. We have so much in common with the city of Pergamum. And Jesus' words to Pergamum are just as potent and important to us today. Here's an important thing we learn, a very important truth. If you're writing this down, writing anything down, write this down. We can remain true to Jesus even when we're in the heart of the enemy's camp. We can remain true to him. We can ascribe to him. We can follow him. We can make him Lord, him king, him number one in our lives, even when everything around us does not. That's good news. Jesus actually encourages the church in Pergamum, and he says, keep it up. Keep going. But then he says this, and every parent knows this line, Revelation 2, verse 14. He says, nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You know what I'm talking about? Like when you're growing up and mom and dad come home and they're like, great job cleaning the house. Why is your brother bleeding? I have a few things against you, right? It's preparation for a rebuke, a correction that comes out of love. That's what Jesus is preparing Pergamum for. The city, the church that lives within the city of Pergamum, Jesus is saying, you've done some great things really well, but I have this against you. So listen. And we ought to listen as well. Here's what he says. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food, sacrificed to idols, and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Makes sense, doesn't it? No. I read that and I went, oh, great. And I got a lot of studying to do. Who's Balaam? Who's Balak? Who are the Nicolaitans? Let me articulate who these people were and who these kind of sects of, of like religion were. It'll make a lot more sense. The teaching of Balaam, Balaam was the prototype of corruption. Interesting. The teachings of Balaam combined immorality and idolatry and mixed them together. Idolatry, things that take ownership, take precedence, take number one in our hearts, and immorality, things that are just evil and wrong and gross and nasty and perverted, and you mix the two of them together. It's a horrible combination. Sexual immorality was so prevalent in the Roman Empire. In fact, even the Roman government put things out, uh, put statements out that they would say no man should be withheld anything that he wants sexually in the culture in the context, in the city, wherever. No man should be withheld from that. Wow. Here's, here's what they also said. Let me, let me change it a little bit. You can't deny anyone their sexual expression at all, even if it infringes on other people. Isn't it scary how closely aligned that culture is to many facets of our culture today? Jesus is saying, stop. My church is not of that. My church does not support that. My church does not back that. My church stands opposed to those very things. Jesus is rebuking the church in Pergamum, saying, do not endorse that. And then the Nicolaitans, this is something also that's interesting. Nicolaitans comes from Nicolaus. It would be the word uh, or the name, and it would literally mean to conquer the people. 
It was a superiority that existed within the culture of the church that looked and highlighted different people in the church, many of them church leaders, some like myself on a platform, they would say, hey, we're better, we're actually God-like. We're, we're like descendants of God, and so you're, you're to submit to us, you're to follow us, and this began happening in the church, a superiority, inferiority that took place. Rather than the leadership model Jesus demonstrated that he said, I am the leader, therefore I serve. You see the, the reversal, you see the opposite, the flip that was taking place in the church context. Jesus said in a rebuke to his church, that is not what my church will be. That is not what my church will be. It will not be corrupt, it will not be based on superiority, it will not be based on idolatry, and it will not be based on immorality. My church is different. Even when the culture around you pushes towards these things, my church is different. You see why following Jesus back then and following Jesus today requires a choice? Because to not choose is to go with the flow with culture. But to choose is to stand firm and stand against and say, I choose Jesus, therefore I renounce this other stuff. That's what following Jesus meant to the church in Pergamum, and it's what following Jesus means to us today. The problem, if I could boil it down this way, was the church looked a lot more like the culture than it did Jesus. The Jesus people. The followers of Jesus looked a lot more like their culture, a lot more like their country, a lot more like their government, a lot more like the entertainment and the sin of their world. They looked a lot more like that than they did Jesus. And Jesus has this encouragement and rebuke and command for them. Let's keep reading. He says, repent. You know what repentance means? Stop and turn. That's what repentance means. It means you're moving in one direction. Stop and turn. Change your behavior. Change your motives. Change your heart. Make a decision to go against the direction that you were previously going. He says, repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. What's the sword of my mouth? Scripture. Scripture. It's this thing that provides such grace, such abundant love and mercy and forgiveness. God says, through my word, I will provide this for you. But if you choose against me, if you go against me, if you refuse the gift, then the other side of the sword is judgment. The other side of the sword is condemnation. The other side of the sword is eternal separation from God forever. Jesus says, otherwise, I will come against you. If you don't repent, you're against me. Go against the culture. Go against the evil. Go against the wickedness. Go, go against the superiority and follow me. Because newsflash, book of Revelation, Jesus wins in the end. Jesus wins in the end. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. You know, most of my life, I've had a giant resistance to the book of Revelation, even leading up to when we talked as a teaching team a couple months ago about jumping into the book of Revelation. You know why I had such a resistance to it, like a hesitation or, or fear of it? It's because when I was growing up, um, I would do this thing, I would misbehave, I would pick on my siblings, I, I'd be a little mouthy to my mom uh, because I could get away with it. You know what I'm talking about? I'd get away with it until what? 
till dad's car rolled in the driveway. And I went, the reckoning has arrived and I wanna be anywhere else. As I've looked at Revelation, what I've feared most of my life is reading that and reading through the judgment that eventually is gonna come to me. That's what I've feared. That's what I've feared about God for so much of my life. It feels like this, let me say it a different way. It feels like everything I've done wrong, I've outran thus far and it's about to catch up. It's about to catch up. You ever have that feeling? It was funny in 2020 being a pastor and watching church people and then watching the world, it was like a frenzy. I mean, it was like a chicken with their head cut off. I mean, just tearing around, going ballistic. People, why, why would people be so nervous, so afraid? And my hunch is people were afraid that Jesus is coming back and we're not ready. That we're still aligned with culture and sin and brokenness and evil rather than aligned with the person of Jesus. You know what I never caught in the book of Revelation? I had people come up to me after we announced uh, in December, hey, we're gonna jump into the book of Revelation. I had people come up to me and say the exact same thing. I've been afraid of it my entire life. I'm so excited we're jumping in. Me too. Because what I saw and what I've discovered in studying is there was something in there I had missed. I was so worried of the judgment, I missed the invitation that Jesus baked into almost all of these letters for the churches. Five out of seven are an invitation to repent and to turn, and you go, oh man, don't wanna be in the other two. You know what the other two were? Encouragement. No rebuke, just encouragement. It's funny, I was getting Judah ready, I have a two-year-old, I was getting Judah ready this morning by myself. My wife's a nurse, so she's at the children's hospital all day for a 12-hour shift. So me and Judah in the morning, and my child is up and down, up and down, up and down, emotionally speaking. And uh, I was in the room, and so he woke up, and he sees me, and he smiles, and he gives me this big hug, and I'm like, yes, dad win. This just feels great. You know what I'm talking about, like when a toddler hugs you? You're like, everything's right in the world. So give him a big hug, and then he looks at me, and he goes, hmm. And he pushes me away and he walks right back to the corner of the room and I'm like, okay, Judah, we gotta get ready. Come on over here. And he just looks at me and he goes, no. Did I miss something? I didn't even say anything. Nothing, can we, can we please get ready? No. I'm like, are you kidding me? Right now, you're just gonna dig your heels in for no good reason. And, and so I'm back and I'm going, Judah, come here, buddy. Give daddy another hug. Come on over. I'm right here. You're not in trouble. Nothing. Just come here. Come give me a hug. Wouldn't do it. Wouldn't do it. Wouldn't do it. Just stay there. And now I start to get mad. I go, Judah, get over here. I am gonna be late. Judah, I start changing my tone. And he doesn't move. And no joke, it was in that moment, I literally thought to myself, this is me and God. This is me and God. Whatever apprehension or resistance Judah had for me, it it was ill-founded. There's no reason for it. Judah knows he's safe with me. Judah knows I'm there to provide for him. Judah knows I'm gonna protect him. Judah knows all of these things. You know what I wanted to do? So fascinating. All I wanted to do was get him ready for the next step of our day. You know what I think all, all God wants to do for many of us? And for some of you, it it, it involves baptism. It's to get you ready for the next season of life that you're about to step into. And he's sitting there and he's coaxing you and he's calling you and he's inviting you and he's saying, I haven't changed. I haven't changed. 
Come to me. Come to me. Come to me. So many of us mistake a rebuke for judgment. Jesus is saying, if you turn against me, if you, if you rebel against me, if you, if you choose culture over me, you've chosen judgment for yourself, but I'm here to offer you grace. All I'm here to do is offer you grace. Here's what he says, Revelation 2, verse 17. He says, to the one who's victorious, to the one who chooses me, I will give some of the hidden manna. I'll provide for you in ways you don't even expect. Manna was God's provision to the Israelite people when they were walking and wandering in the desert. They did nothing to earn it. They certainly didn't deserve it. And God said, I'm going to bless you. And by the way, it was like Krispy Kreme donuts. It was sweet. It was delicious. It was good. God says, I got good stuff for you. I'm not just going to give you bland, dry, moldy. I, I have gifts for you in ways you don't even anticipate. To the one who's victorious, I'll give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name on it, known only to the one who receives it. And that white stone, I went, what the heck is that? You know what white stones were used for in this culture? A bunch of different things. Check this out. I'm good with any of them. First one was friendship. You give someone a, a stone, you just, it, this is a sign of like friendship. It's a gift. It's a bonding. Another one would be evidence of being counted, like in a census, like in attendance. Like, is everybody here? You've, you've been counted. I see you. You're a part of me. You're part of our family. Here's another one. An award to an athlete, like an Olympian. You've accomplished what I put before you. That there's a prize on the other side. This is a gift that I have for you. How about this? A banquet invitation. An invitation to a party and a celebration. When Jesus comes back, it will be the celebration of a lifetime. It'll be unbelievable. It'll be the banquet spread you can't even imagine. Or the last one means this. Acquittal in court of law. Every one of those lines up with the character of God. And he's saying, even though you look at your life and what you deserve is judgment and punishment and separation from me, when you repent, you're acquitted. You're innocent. You're set free. Jesus said, I'll take the punishment on your behalf. Because a wrong was still committed. Justice needed to be done, but Jesus said, I'll pay for it. God says, when you turn, when you repent, when you make a decision for me, this is what you get in return. You get me. You know, for much of my life, I was baptized as an infant. It wasn't my choice. It wasn't my decision. I don't think there was anything wrong with that, but I wrestled with it when I became older. Teenage years, high school years, College years, I was wrestling and wrestling and wrestling because I'd read about in Scripture, when you turn, when you repent, when you give your life to the Lord, what Jesus instructed his followers to do was to be baptized. Because baptism is symbolic. What it means when you go into the water, you go into the water and down, and it's as if you died with Jesus. Jesus died on a cross. So he says, when you die, you die to yourself, but when you come back to life, or when you come back out of the water, it's like Jesus, when Jesus came back to life, defeated death, defeated sin, defeated the grave, defeated it all. 
Jesus said, I want you to do that in a group of people so that they will see outwardly what you and I have experienced inwardly. And so for me, I wrestled going, man, I gave my life to Jesus as a college student. I was a freshman. And I finally, I mean, just the emotions and the pain. And and finally I went, you know what, Jesus, I've lived this double life. I just need to repent. I just need to come back to you. I'm making a decision for you today. And I knew afterwards, between me and the Holy Spirit, I needed to be baptized. Carried it for five years. Why? Probably for the same reason many of you in this room have done the exact same thing. Do I really need to get up in front of a group of people? Do I really need to do it right now? I really wanna have everybody there that's important to me to witness it, to be a part of it. I wanna get my stuff straightened out first. I wanna get my life under control. I wanna, I wanna get rid of whatever sin pattern I have or I need to make things right or I, I, need to, I need to prove to God that I'm worth it first. But I had all of those things. You know what's funny? On, my, on the path, the day I got baptism or baptized, it was February 26, 2017. It was the Sunday before I started here as a pastor. And some of the most important people to me in the world weren't there. But you want to know something? My Savior was. Baptism isn't about the euphoric feelings. It's about the obedience to the person of Jesus. He says, when you, give my, when you give your life to me, share it. Be obedient so that others might look at you and see what I have done and be compelled and be drawn in by your testimony so that they might experience the love and the grace and the forgiveness and the redemption that Jesus has to offer. So here's how we're going to close. Some of you today is the day, and you know it. And I'm excited because I get to be up here and say, let's do it together. It's one of the coolest experiences ever. The decision to follow Jesus, what, what, what takes place here could change the direction of the rest of your life. Don't miss it. Because everybody else here can't wait to celebrate it with you. Father, we come before you right now. Those that um, are wrestling right now, Father, should I do it or shouldn't I do it? Should I do it or shouldn't I do it? Father, would you give them peace through your Holy Spirit? Would you just give them peace? Would you just remind them that this is an important day, it's an important decision, but Father, you have already done for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. You've promised that that in our obedience, you give us a new name. When we repent and we say, God, I can't do it, but you can, we find salvation and you wanna put that on display for the world to see. Father, would you give those who are about to decide or making the decision or have already decided, would you give them courage? Would you give them boldness? Would you allow them to be an example for those that they are with? Would you allow them to be an encouragement? Would you allow them to be a light in their community and in their context? And would you allow them, Father, to experience what obedience to you feels like? We love you, Lord. We love you. We pray this in Jesus' precious and powerful and holy name. And everybody said together, amen.